Well, good morning. You know, a friend of mine told me not too long ago about a guy who was searching the Internet for a used car. And then he came across an ad that on Craigslist he thought uh, was interesting. It said, Porsche, excellent condition, $50. He thought, well, that's probably a scam, but the curiosity got the best of him. And he called, and a woman answered the phone and assured him that, indeed, she had a Porsche 911 for sale for just $50. He made an appointment immediately, rushed over to her house, knocked on the door. This nice-looking woman answered the door and showed her, showed him the car. And it was in just mint condition. He couldn't believe it. He said, can I take it for a test drive? She said, sure, and tossed him the keys. He said it drove like a dream. He pulled back in her driveway, gave her the keys, and then reached into his wallet, pulled out $50, and kind of hesitantly handed it to her, and to his surprise, she signed the title and gave him the title and the keys to the car. Well, he was just ecstatic. He couldn't believe it. He he grabbed the keys and said, thank you, and turned to go back to his car when he paused. He turned back and looked at her and said, lady, you've got to know you could have sold that car for more than $50. Why did you let it go so cheaply? She said, well, three days ago, my husband called me from Las Vegas. He told me he was leaving me for his secretary and would not be back. He asked me if I would sell his car and send him the money. <laughs> now, who would blame her for what she did in her own way? She was simply paying him back. You know, we, we live in a culture today that says, don't get mad, uh, don't get mad, get even. In other words, somebody does you wrong, you don't turn the cheek, the other cheek. No, you pay them back. In fact, uh, revenge is a popular notion in our culture today. In fact, you can see it in the number of lawsuits that are filed every year in America. Did you know this year alone they're estimating there'll be over 40 million lawsuits filed in America? That's one lawsuit every second. That's one lawsuit for every six adults. You see, we live in a hostile, retaliating, vengeful, angry culture that wants someone else to pay for our inconvenience or our pain. Now, I think that is Paul's concern when he pins a letter to a dear friend of his. The friend's name is Philemon. And in that letter, Paul tells him basically this. Philemon, don't get even, get better. Now, to know exactly what he's talking about, you need to turn with me to the book that bears the man's name, the book of Philemon. And let's begin reading together in verse 1. Paul begins this way. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow worker. To the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God 
our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this greeting, uh, we learn a few things. First of all, it's addressed to a man named Philemon. And you need to know he is a wealthy businessman living in Colossae. Uh, He's probably met Paul um, maybe years earlier on a business trip uh, to Ephesus where Paul was. And while there, lo and behold, Paul leads him to Christ. And as a result, Paul and Philemon become good friends. Now, Paul is married to Aphia, and Archippus is probably their son. I want you to notice that uh, Paul calls Philemon a fellow laborer and Archippus a fellow soldier. It probably means they had responsibilities in the church there in Colossae. And you also discover that the church actually met in Philemon's home. Now, what we don't know that's going to be revealed as we look at this letter uh, is that Philemon is not just wealthy, he's quite wealthy. I mean, his house is big enough, his home is big enough to house the church at Colossae. And we also find out that he owns slaves. Uh, We're introduced to one down in verse 10. Uh, His name is Onesimus. Now, you need to know that in Paul's day, well, slavery was legal. In fact, it's estimated that in the entire Roman Empire, there were over uh, 60 million slaves. Rome had a habit of taking their military conquest and enslaving them, but an individual could become a slave as well. Uh, if he had a debt to pay or an obligation, he could sell himself into slavery. And historians tell us that in the Roman Empire, the average price of a slave at this time was about, oh, 500 denarii. Now, one denarius was equivalent to a day's wage of a common laborer. So you can see you had to be quite wealthy to own a slave, much less a number of slaves. Uh, But, I mean, depending upon their education and their skill level, a slave could go as high as 50,000 denarii. And a slave in the Roman Empire could find freedom in one of two ways. Uh, His master could grant him freedom, or he could buy his freedom if he had the ability to earn money on the side. Onesimus, Philemon's slave, did neither. He decided to run away. And we're told in the letter that when he ran away from Colossae, he took some things that were precious to Philemon. Now, we don't know what he took. But we do know that stealing is a criminal offense that carried with it a penalty of possibly imprisonment, but for a slave, maybe even death. So Philemon has a slave. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus steals some things from his master here in Colossae, and he runs away. And he makes the 1,200-mile trip all the way over across the continent of Europe to Rome, the teeming metropolis of Rome. He's hoping to get lost in the crowds, never to be found again. Well, historians tell us that Rome was about 900,000 people at this time, of which 300,000 were slaves. So the chances are good he would never be seen again. But as fate has it, 
It just so happens that while he is in Rome, Onesimus runs into, of all people, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's there because he's under house arrest waiting trial. And Paul ends up leading Onesimus to Jesus. And as time goes by, you end up discovering that um, Paul learns that Onesimus was actually a runaway slave. And then Paul discovers that he's a runaway slave from his dear friend in Colossae way over there. He's a runaway from Philemon. So Paul knows that he's going to have to send Onesimus back. Even though Onesimus has been very profitable and beneficial to Paul while he's under house arrest, he's going to have to send him back to his old friend Philemon. He wants Onesimus to make things right with his friend Philemon or his master Philemon. Now, that's why Paul writes this letter. He writes it because he wants to encourage Philemon to be fair with Onesimus when he sends him back. You see, society says, Onesimus is a slave. He's got to pay. Society says he needs to be imprisoned. Society says you need to beat him within an inch of his life. He's a runaway slave. He has to learn his lesson. But Paul goes, no, no. Philemon, for your sake, don't get even. Get better. I want you to forgive him. Philemon, there's greater benefit to you if you can learn how to forgive. You know, it's interesting. You can read this entire letter over time and time again and never find the word forgive or forgiveness mentioned once. Yet forgiveness is at the heart of everything Paul is asking Philemon to do. I want you to notice the way Paul approaches his friend in this letter. He approaches him as a consummate encourager. Look at verse 4. He says, I thank my God making mention of you in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ. Now notice, Paul doesn't begin his letter to Philemon by saying, Dear Philemon, uh, forgive Onesimus, love Paul. No, he wouldn't have got the reaction he was hoping to get, would he, if he had done that. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's what you would do. I mean, haven't you ever had to go before your parents and spill the beans about something you did that you shouldn't have done? I mean, you start by telling them the 20 things you like about your parents, don't you? Yeah, you did that. Or or if you have a complaint to a boss about something related to your job, you start telling your boss the three things you really appreciate about your job. I mean, it just makes sense. So... I mean, notice how Paul begins. He says, I thank God for you making mention of you in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I mean, it's obvious that Paul has a fond affection for his friend Philemon. But did you notice mid-sentence Paul switches from thanking God for Philemon's love and faith to 
praying for Philemon. Did you see that? Notice what he says. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ. Now, that word sharing is the Greek word koinonia. Now, you've probably heard it before. It's where we get our English word fellowship. Now, when you think of fellowship, you think of about sharing a meal together, going to a movie with friends. But that word koinonia is a very difficult word to translate. That, that word means to belong partner, to engage with. So, Paul saying, I pray that the engagement of your faith may become effective, meaning powerful by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ. Now, now that word acknowledgement you see there, that's the Greek word epigenosis, and it's probably better translated knowledge, but this word is not talking about intellectual knowledge. It's not talking about knowing some facts. This word is very specific. This is knowledge that's gained through personal experience. So, I mean, what Paul is saying is, I pray that the engagement of your faith will deepen your experience with who God is in you. In other words, Paul is saying, Philemon, I know the kind of man God wants you to be. And I'm getting ready to call out in you something, something unique. I'm going to call out the best in you that's going to allow you to experience the best in what God is like. Now, that would be encouraging, wouldn't it? So Paul begins as this consummate encourager. But notice, next he becomes the concerned mentor. I think... Paul sees an opportunity in front of him. It's an opportunity for growth. He could approach Philemon in the authority of an apostle, but notice he doesn't. Instead, he appeals to him as a friend. Verse 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. Now, as I read that, it, it may sound to you like uh, Paul is trying to manipulate a particular response out of Philemon, like some kind of scheming Jewish mom. I never mind that I gave birth to you. I mean, never mind that I took care of you my entire life. I mean, did you know your head is as big as a bowling ball? Deliver that, huh? Boy, vey. No, that would be inconsistent with what Paul has just said, wouldn't it? Look at verse 9. For love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. And then if you have your Bibles open, look down at verse 14. You, you'll notice it says, I don't want you to do this out of compulsion. I want you to do it voluntarily. I mean, instead, I think Paul is approaching Philemon as a wise, experienced mentor who understands clearly the, how healing, how refreshing, how profitable 
forgiveness can actually be. And then notice again in verse 10 it says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, meaning that he led him to Christ. You see, Paul led Philemon to Christ years earlier, and now he's led Onesimus to Christ. But he goes further, he, he goes on to say, Onesimus, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Do you know what the name Onesimus means? It means profitable. I mean, do you see what Paul's doing here? It, it's a play on words. He's saying Onesimus in the past has never lived up to his name, but now that he's become a Christ follower, he wants to live consistent with his name. Ever had anybody do you wrong and promise you something but then rip you off? It's not easy to forget, is it? I mean, it kind of comes back and haunts you, depending upon the pain it caused you. I mean, you go to bed at night planning their crucifixion, don't you? You wake up in the morning, I mean, plotting how you're going to set the record straight. You start to become judge, jury, and executioner with them. It's just human nature. It's normal. I'll never forget walking into our house after vacation, Patty and I, and I sensed something was wrong. Something was different. I didn't know what it was. Couldn't put my finger on it first. And after a minute, I said, Patty, where's our TV? Our stereo. Where's the stereo? Hey, my guns are gone. I went into the bedroom, and our pillows were just lined up neatly on the bed, but all the pillowcases were gone. They had used our pillowcases as their own personal shopping bags as they went through the house taking jewelry, valuables, things that were precious to us. Over the next 90 days, I mean, I kept discovering things that were missing. We'd had to report to the insurance company. I never felt so violated in my whole life. I can remember just daydreaming at times, thinking, how am I going to get even? What I'd do to those sorry outfits if I caught them, and how I could lay a trap for them. Now, I think that's the kind of thing Philemon is wrestling with here. I mean, he's been living with the memory of how Onesimus snuck away in the middle of the night and ripped him off of things that are precious to him. Now, in the Roman Empire, a runaway slave would have been reported to the authorities. And his name would have been placed on a list that would be distributed throughout the entire Roman Empire eventually. And, according to Roman law, any citizen of Rome uh, could arrest a runaway slave if he had the ability, and then he would negotiate his return to his master. Now, some slave owners were extremely cruel. In fact, there's record of one slave owner who uh, had a pond filled with flesh-eating eels that he would throw his runaway slave in to teach him a lesson. Ooh. Uh, others sometimes would uh, brand their slave with a capital F on his forehead for fugitivus. That's where we get our English word fugitive. But most slave owners treated, understood the value of the, that commodity and treated 
their slaves fairly and humanely. So you got this letter that's been written in Rome by Paul. And Paul gives it to a man named Tychicus who makes the 1,200-mile trip all the way over to Colossae to hand-deliver the letter to Philemon. But Tychicus didn't make the trip alone. Standing behind Tychicus is another man. It's Onesimus. Hat in hand, so to speak. Willing to face whatever fate awaits him. So it's here that Paul, in the letter, begins his formal request. Verse 12, it says, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might be by, might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for the purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you? Now, Roman law required that a runaway slave had to be returned to his master. So Paul says, I'm returning him to you. I'm asking you to receive him back. Do you know those words are like the words of a legal declaration? But, but you need to know at this point, a slave owner could do whatever he wanted with his slave once he had him back. He could mistreat him. He could beat him. And no one could do anything about it. So Paul includes in his letter a request to Philemon to receive him back as a brother. Notice he says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. I mean, can you see it? On the surface, he's saying, receive him back. But beneath the surface, the real request is, I want you to receive him back as a brother. In other words, forgive him. Forgive him. Now, on this trip that Tychicus made to Colossae, he's carrying another letter with him. And he drops that off by this, the, at the church at Ephesus. And it's interesting, in that very letter, Paul gives the basis of what, of forgive, the basis of forgiveness that he's asking Philemon to exercise toward Onesimus. In fact, in that letter in Ephesians 4.32, it says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. See, the basis of forgiveness is we've been forgiven. You, you and I can forgive others because Christ has forgiven us. Did you know one of the most powerful forces on this planet is forgiveness? I mean, it can break down walls. It can free hearts. It can mend countries and it can restore families. It really calls out the best in us. It can take hate and turn it into tenderness, a desire to destroy into a passion to protect. It's more powerful than any country, any weapon, any amount of money. And you and I, as Christ followers, we get to wield this powerful weapon called forgiveness. 
You know, when we think of forgiveness, we tend to think of the forgiveness that we need to seek. And that's natural. I mean, we've all done something wrong. And we know we need to seek forgiveness for the wrongs we've done. But we don't tend to think of the forgiveness that we need to grant. Now, why is that? Well, it's because of our culture. It's because our culture is so obsessed with wanting to get even, to pay the other person back, or at least to avoid the other person whenever we find ourselves around them. But but did you know you're never more like God than when you forgive? You know, think of all the qualities that we try to understand about God. This one, forgiveness, is the one that baffles us the most. Do you know why? It's because it's so contrary to our nature. You see, when I'm hurt, uh, when my pride's been wounded, I don't want to let that person off the hook. No, I want them to pay. But that's just natural. But God says, I don't want you to do what's natural. I'm going to ask you to do what's supernatural. I'm going to ask you to forgive. And because of that, I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes to forgiveness today. You see, forgiveness is not pretending that something didn't happen. That would be living in denial, wouldn't it? It's not pretending something didn't happen. Granted, forgiveness doesn't mean that you minimize how much another person has hurt you. And secondly, forgiveness is not conditional. I'll forgive you if you promise and you have a list of three things they've got to do. I mean, you're not being very forgiving if you're trying to exact a pound of flesh in the process. And forgiveness is not forgetting that old adage, forgive and forget. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, think about it logically. How can you forgive somebody something you've forgotten? You can't. Biblical forgiveness means remembering the offense. Remembering the pain, but choosing not to hold it against the other person. And forgiveness is not an automatic cure for the hurt. In fact, Corey Ten Boone, in one of her books, talks about the atrocities done to she and her family in a concentration camp in World War II. And when they were released from the concentration camp at the end of the war, She said she'd forgiven the Nazis for all they'd done, but the angry thoughts just kept coming back to her. And so after several months of sleepless nights, she decided to go to her pastor for help. And the pastor took Corey up to the bell tower. He said, Corey, when the sexton pulls on the rope, the bell goes ding and dong and ding and dong. It'll continue to ring as long as he's pulling on the rope. But there comes a time where he has to let go of the rope. And when he does, the bell goes ding and dong and ding and dong. And then there's the final ding. He said, I I believe forgiveness is like that. You see, forgiveness is taking your hands off the rope. But if you've been pulling on your grievances for some time, it shouldn't surprise you that those old angry feelings keep coming back. It's just the ding and the dong of the bell slowing down. Sometimes it takes some time for our emotions to catch up with our decisions. So what's involved with forgiveness? Well, uh, granting forgiveness 
means, number one, it's a choice to set a person free from the debt of their offense. Choosing to forgive means choosing not to dwell on the matter. It means choosing not to bring it up again. It means choosing not to talk about it with others. In other words, you choose to let go of the rope. But granting forgiveness also is a decision to let go of resentment and vengeance. I keep this Nerf ball in my office, and it is there to remind me of my natural tendency uh, to want to get even with people, to hurt people back for hurting me. If I find myself, you know, reminiscing a hurt or maybe arguing uh, with somebody in my mind, and of course I win all those arguments, I'll pick up that Nerf ball and I'll grab it in my hand and I'll squeeze it as tight as I can. And I'll hold it as long as I can. And when I can't hold it any longer, I'll open my hand and let it roll out of my hand and onto the floor. Did you know the Hebrew word for commit means to literally roll? I roll it out of my hand and commit it to God. I give it to Him. And I leave it there on the floor as a reminder that uh, He's got it. I let Him work out all the unfairness. Let Him take care of the details. I'm going to quit arguing in my mind about it. I'm going to let it go. Did you know that's exactly how Jesus navigated the cross? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.23 this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed. Committed himself. There's... He rolled it out of his hands to him who judges righteously. He let it go and let God have it. And then thirdly, granting forgiveness is really the first step toward rebuilding trust. There's a difference between trust and forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness can be granted immediately. Trust has to be earned over time. In fact, learning how to forgive is really an essential part of growth that can lead to maturity. That's exactly why uh, Paul is encouraging Philemon, don't get even, get better. It's a supernatural work of God's Spirit in our lives. But I want you to notice that uh, Paul is more than just a concerned mentor. He's also a committed guarantor. Look at verse 18. He says, but if he has wronged you and or owes me anything, put that to my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy in you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that you that through your prayers I'll be granted to you. Now, notice, Paul says, if he owes you anything, uh, put it to my account. 
In other words, I'm going to pay. But he takes it a step further. Notice he says in the next verse, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. Do you know that was the terminology of an ancient contract? What Paul is doing here is he's signing a promissory note. And I owe you. He's saying, I'm going to repay. And then in verse 20, he says, and let my joy, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Did you know that word joy is not the usual word for joy used time and time again throughout the entire New Testament? This word literally means profit. You see, every time forgiveness is granted, a price has to be paid. And that price is paid by the one granting the forgiveness. And Paul wants Philemon to know, even though forgiving Onesimus is going to be costly to you, there's profit in it as well. You see, when you forgive, you set a prisoner free from the debt of his offense. But there's also benefit to you. You do set a prisoner free. But you discover that prisoner was actually you. You were the one that was being held captive by an unforgiving heart. I want you to see the freedom that a woman experienced learning the value of forgiveness through her intense experience in life. Watch the screen. lived 40 years of my life in unforgiveness because of what other people did to me. I wonder if my life could really change The earliest memory of my life is of sexual abuse. I was sexually molested by family members from the age of, between the ages of 4 and 14. Um, I lived in a secret dark place. Right around the age of 14, um, I was the victim of a date rape. And again, um, thinking that this was all my fault, it was more secrets I had to keep. And basically the next teenage years, I lived a self-destructive life. Uh, Drugs, alcohol, um, promiscuity, everything. I just wanted to die. Before I finished high school, I ran away from home. And at about 19 years old, I moved to Colorado. And it was there that again, I was raped. This is the unbrutally. And I thought I deserved it. Fast forward to age 44. And um, there was a lot of things going on in my life that it just all came crashing down. Just there was tragedies, people dying, my son going off to college, um, losing friends, losing jobs. My sister came to my rescue and she sent me a copy of the book called Love, Forgive and Love Again. And it was through that counseling and that that uh, book that led me to start searching really, really deeply into the Bible about what forgiveness is all about. And after um, I really found that relationship with Christ, that um, God was calling me to spread this wonderful message of, of forgiveness any way that I could. And he sent so many people to me that needed advice, that needed 
guidance. He needed to know how to forgive. Not everybody has been 40 years without forgiveness, but each and every one has something they they need to forgive someone for, need to forgive themselves for. I don't care if you are in the deepest darkest depths. Know that God is there and He is waiting for you to just accept His gift. It is forgiveness, and you too can be free. You know, Debbie's story really highlights the value of releasing somebody from the debt of their offense against you. I wonder this morning, is there someone or something that you are holding on to? Hoping that one day you could get even. That you could make them pay. Is there someone that you are trying to set the record straight with? Let me encourage you, don't get even. Get better. Open your hand and release whatever that is and roll it to God and let Him work out all the unfairness of it. And on the flip side, you'll discover the profit that returns to you when you grant forgiveness. Father, thank you for this small, seemingly insignificant letter that has such profound impact. I ask you this morning, Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind any offense that we're hanging on to? Any person we desire to set the record straight with? Anything where someone has taken advantage of us and we're looking for an opportunity to pay them back? And then, Holy Spirit, would you give that person the courage and the strength to open their hand and let go? Give it to you. Let you be in charge of all that. And then engage with the value, the profit that comes when we release. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for coming. If you're new here this morning, we would love to meet you and would like to invite you down to the hearth room. It's the third door on the left as you leave. And if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out the door and to your left. I hope you enjoy the rest of this day, and we'll see you back next week.